This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today, the Return to Order Moment considers three ways that liberals, progressives, socialists, whatever you want to call them, are trying to create an unworkable and chaotic society. Perhaps it can best be summarized in the phrase, a world gone mad. We examine three aspects of this developing insanity in this podcast, entitled Turning the World Upside Down. First, John Horvath II considers the attempt to extend rights to anything and everything in his article, Can Rivers, Rice, and Orangutans Have Personhood Rights? The classic philosophical definition of a person is, quote, an individual substance of a rational nature, unquote. A person possesses a center point of being, autonomy and self-sufficiency, which irrational beings do not have. To be a person, one must have a nature capable of self-consciousness, self-possession, and self-control. Definitions like this have long dominated the philosophical discussion of personhood. Since the person is the smallest component of the social units that make up society, defining the person is important. If agreement cannot be reached on such fundamentals, then the whole foundation of society and law is thrown upside down. The classical idea of a person is now being challenged. Today, one does not need to be a person to have personhood. Anything can be a person. It need not be living or rational. Existence seems to be the only requirement, at least for now. Indeed, philosophy matters. It is no wonder society is so chaotic when people do not know what things are. The Yurok tribe in northwestern California has declared, for example, that the Klamath River now has the quote-unquote rights of personhood. Ecomedia are all aglow with reports of the Tribal Council's resolution to give personhood rights to the river. This move fits the current eco-crisis narrative. What prompted the tribal action were low water flows, diseased salmon, and canceled fishing seasons over the past few years. The tribal elders decided that the river's rights were being violated by unnamed assailants that must be brought to eco-justice. By providing personhood to the river, Native American lawyers hope to establish new legal frameworks that go beyond the normal environmental protections that have long been in place. Non-human beings will no longer be considered resources, but right holders, enjoying equal legal standing with humans. This new status supposedly corresponds to the traditional indigenous relationships with nature. The Uroks join other tribal groups in declaring such rights. In 2017, the New Zealand government negotiated with the Maori tribes to give legal standing in court to the Wanganui River. Rights need not be limited to geographic locations. In 2018, Minnesota's White Earth Band of Ojibwe declared the human rights of wild rice, called Manuman and the freshwater places where it grows. Manuman is the first plant species to claim human rights, although no one has tested the decision in court. 
The declarations of river and rice rights are not empty claims made by isolated tribes. Such pronouncements coincide with the left's climate emergency agenda. From New Zealand to California, a rights of nature movement is forming that will destroy the traditional Christian notion of personhood. It also destroys the Catholic concept of the order of the universe, in which humans have dominion over the lower orders of creation. It enthrones a pantheistic notion of Mother Earth as a living being to which all things belong equally. The movement enjoys support from the United Nations and the global ecological movement. Activists can cite the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as a foundation document that guarantees their right to protect nature in their dominions. They also enjoy the full collaboration of liberal media that never tire of spreading the eco-message far and wide, especially when it involves oppressed indigenous peoples. However, the most important accomplishment of the Rights of Nature movement will be to establish powerfully subversive roots inside the world's legal systems. By giving human rights to nature... Activists can challenge the rights of those who wish to develop nature to serve humanity. They will have at their disposal powerful legal tools to pursue their ideological agenda and hamstring entrepreneurship. The movement is already changing the law. An Argentine judge recently granted personhood rights to an orangutan named Sandra, which was moved to a special sanctuary in Florida as part of those rights. Soon, judicial activism will be used to open up avenues by which liberals can implement radical measures in the name of climate change. Such legal measures can be abused by overzealous activists, some of whom advocate the extinction of the human race. The legal abuse of human rights for nature is compounded by a philosophical error. Rivers and rice will be granted rights that are reserved for living, rational beings that are self-conscious, self-possessing, and self-controlling. Non-rational beings like rivers have no means of expressing themselves rationally. They cannot understand, much less plead their cases in court. It is thus left to savvy indigenous lawyers and international NGOs to perceive the violated rights of their unknowing clients. Through their proxies, rivers can claim damages against a consumer society for anything that impedes the free flow and natural evolution of their waters. The self-proclaimed river interpreters can claim the river's rights to a stable climate free from alleged human-caused climate change. Rivers can demand reparations for past violations, demand sanctions and penalties against present offenders, and veto future developers. Such sweeping indictment powers become blank checks in the hands of activists who can use them to change society to accommodate a supposedly aggrieved nature. The Rights for Nature movement weaponizes law against humanity. It becomes one more tool in a revolutionary arsenal that seeks to destroy the order that God put in civilization. It smothers the remnants of Christian civilization and true progress with Gnostic pantheism. The world is mad when any non-human thing can be granted personhood rights. Such claims are a blatant denial of reality. 
non-people are not and never can be persons. Rivers and rice must be treated according to their nature, not human nature. The only thing more tragic is that today, another class of persons is being denied personhood rights. Humans. Activists declare that some people are not considered persons. The unborn child is truly, quote-unquote, an individual substance of a rational nature. Yet attempts by pro-life activists to secure their personhood rights from conception to birth fall on deaf ears. The same eco-activists that defend nature's pseudo-personhood deny unborn babies their true human personhood in the natural setting of their mother's wombs. They are not allowed the quote-unquote free flow and natural evolution of their development as humans. Unlike rivers and rice, babies have a beating heart, feel pain, and have immortal souls. But the new rights for nature movement pretends not to notice. End of Can Rivers, Rice, and Orangutans Have Personhood Rights? by John Horvath II. Another way in which the left is trying to reshape society is in the area of crime and punishment. Like the idea of rights, the definitions of crime and punishment were an area of common ground for traditionalists and liberals until quite recently. We explore the way in which those terms are being redefined in the article... Are Progressive Prosecutors the Enemies of Public Safety? by Edwin Benson. In November, most Americans will go to their polling places. Most will have decided which candidates they support for president, governor, senator, and legislator. However, very few will have informed opinions about the district attorney. Such ignorance is unfortunate and may be disastrous. Leftist prosecutors increasingly use their offices to promote radical policies. Voters who hear the phrase, progressive prosecution linked to the electoral race, should pay very close attention. Prosecutors, like district attorneys, occupy a unique place in the justice system. They are relatively invisible, yet have a great deal of discretionary power. They determine who is prosecuted and the crimes for which they will be tried. Judges frequently follow the prosecutor's recommendations when setting bail. To streamline the system, prosecutors often propose plea bargains in which defendants plead guilty to lesser crimes. District attorneys are part of the executive branch of government. Therefore, legislatures are unable or unwilling to limit their powers. Unless some blatant act of corruption, such as a bribe, takes place, no law can force a prosecutor to prosecute. They have this discretion because society assumes that they act in the interest of public safety. Progressive prosecutors see their role differently. The University of California Davis Law Review provides an explanation that can serve as a definition. In The Progressive Prosecutor's Handbook, David Allen Sklansky of the Stanford University Law School, a supporter of the trend, presents the goals of the movement, quote, 
A growing number of chief prosecutors have won office by pledging a more balanced approach to criminal justice, more attentive to racial disparities, the risk of wrongful conviction, the problem of police violence, and the failures and terrible costs of mass incarceration, unquote. Notice the phrase, balanced approach. It hides a progressive agenda. The task of a district attorney is to prosecute those accused of breaking the law. Mr. Sklansky asserts that racial disparities and police violence may override the law itself. Allegorical statues representing justice portray a blindfolded female figure carrying scales. The scales denote the need to weigh both sides of a case according to the evidence. The blindfold symbolizes the impartiality of the judge, who is blind to each person's status or station. Prosecutors play a crucial role in the process of justice. They defend society's right to peace and safety by removing those who violate just laws. Professor Sklansky continues, quote, Activists across the country increasingly blamed prosecutors for much of what is wrong with our criminal justice system. Its cruelty, its violence, its wastefulness, its biases, and its unreliability, and they increasingly turned to prosecutors to fix those problems, unquote. During the late 60s, quote-unquote, law and order candidates gained popularity with traditional Americans. Race riots and the anti-Vietnam War protests shook dozens of cities. Violence was part of a growing drug culture. Chief Justice Earl Warren's Supreme Court appeared to put the rights of criminals over those of victims. Many citizens demanded more rigorous law enforcement. The police and the prosecutors had to, quote-unquote, clean up the streets. The public demanded that criminals be arrested, tried, and put away for long sentences. Voters evaluated prosecutors accordingly. The result was predictable. The increase in crime caused more arrests, which in turn yielded more convictions. Prison populations grew. Under great stress, police officers sometimes overreacted. Such situations were intolerable to the left. Law schools soon trained their students to fight against such outrages. The mainstream media publicized cases of quote-unquote police brutality against citizen victims. Those efforts are bearing fruit in progressive prosecution. A typical effort is the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. Its stated goal is to quote Consider a new paradigm for measuring prosecutor success that eschews conviction rates and plea conditions to focus instead on community-centered standards of public safety, equity, and social well-being, unquote. A prime example of this new focus is the centuries-old system of posting cash bail. Cash bail serves several functions. It discourages the accused from fleeing before trial. It releases people who have not been and may never be found guilty of any crime. The accused can still fulfill job and family responsibilities. It relieves the state of feeding and housing the accused. Progressives are oblivious to these benefits. 
ideologically blinded. They only see a system that releases the rich while incarcerating the poor. Thus, these progressive prosecutors request release without bail. The increased right of flight must be sacrificed to the goal of a more egalitarian society. Other methods include low sentencing recommendations and charging the defendants with lesser crimes. Some quote-unquote victimless crimes, such as drug possession, are not prosecuted at all. Perhaps the best example is Chesa Bodine, the district attorney for San Francisco. If revolutionaries acknowledged a kind of radical hierarchy, Mr. Boudin would be on top. Commentary magazine describes his background. Quote, Yale and Oxford-educated Boudin is the son of weather underground terrorists Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert. On October 20, 1981, Chessa was left with a sitter as they went off to execute the infamous Brinks Armor Car robbery, in which the plotters murdered a private security guard and two police officers. Chessa was raised in Chicago by their weathermen comrades, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, two other terrorists who escaped prosecution, unquote. The New York Post quoted one of Mr. Boudin's campaign videos, quote, Growing up, I had to go through a metal detector and steal gates just to give my parents a hug, unquote. His father remains incarcerated. His mother was paroled and is now on the faculty of Columbia University. She co-directs its ironically named Center for Justice. Mr. Boudin reflected on his childhood for NPR, quote, Years now. Decades of visiting my parents behind bars taught me hard lessons about how broken the criminal justice system is, about how devoid of compassion it is. It's not healing the harm that victims experience. It's not rehabilitating people. And in many ways, it's making us less safe, unquote. Notice that nowhere does he blame his parents' crimes for his childhood travails. His campaign was true to form. Real Clear Politics reported that, quote, The cornerstone of Boudin's campaign is sabotaging immigration enforcement. He has called for prosecution and imprisonment of ICE and police officers for doing their job and vowed to create an immigrant defense unit within the DA's office to stand up to Trump on immigration, unquote. This trend is dangerous. It is outrageous not to prosecute merely because the accused is poor or part of a minority. Progressive prosecution must be rejected. Such practices enshrine a fundamental Marxist fallacy in which the group identity replaces the individual. Prosecutors' discretion should apply to individuals rather than groups. A poor person's circumstances might deserve mercy. It should never be ladled out solely because the defendants are impoverished. This phenomenon is nationwide. All voters should look at their local prosecutors. They should ask lawyers for recommendations. Local newspaper reporters, especially those who cover the courthouse, may have useful information. Most district attorneys have a presence on the Internet. Voters need to see if the candidate's website reflects a traditionalist or a progressive point of view.
To those who are not part of the legal system, the local prosecutor's activities are invisible. The health and safety of a community, indeed the ideal of justice itself, may depend on changing that situation. End of Are Progressive Prosecutors the Enemies of Public Safety? by Edwin Benson. The Return to Order moment now considers another ticking liberal time bomb. Unfortunately, it appears that many so-called conservatives are helping this one along. John Horvath II examines this timely topic in Government Can't Keep Acting Like Money Grows on Trees. This article was first published in CNS News on April 14, 2020. A trillion dollars used to be a lot of money. In the past, most people never even thought in these terms since it seemed so far from reality. A trillion was like a gazillion. Few knew how many zeros were involved. However, times have changed. Our economy has expanded, and the value of goods and services has spiraled into the trillions. However, the most significant use of this figure is not growth, but debt. We are immersed in a sea of debt, around $250 trillion worldwide. The coronavirus has made trillion a household word. People now casually throw around trillion-dollar figures as something trivial. They act as if money grows on trees. Indeed, money now seems to be growing on trees. There is no other way to describe the absurdity of what is happening. Either money is growing on trees, or all economic theory known to date has been wrong. Money supply can be unlimited, and we need not fear inflation. Debt does not need to be paid back. No return needs to be made on an investment. Everyone can be trusted with blank checks. The party is never over. Above all, government is spending money as if it grows on trees. The crisis has only accelerated the harvest. Legislators feel that they have an obligation to pull out all the stops to secure the means to make this crisis as painless as possible. They arrogate to the government any powers needed to make it happen. The government spending extravaganza is based on three wrong premises. The first wrong premise is a misunderstanding of the government's role in a crisis. The government can and should help people in times of national emergency. However, it cannot do everything. The federal government should be the provider of last, not first resort. According to the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, the most local bodies should be first to respond to problems. Afterward, larger social units can get involved. Intermediary bodies like the family, community, associations, and churches are the normal means by which people help each other in times of crisis. They are also the least expensive, as these services are often given freely. Unfortunately, these intermediary bodies are in a state of great decline. Many can no longer provide the support needed in a time of crisis. The false premise is that modern government can perform the same functions as the intermediate bodies and absorb their roles. The government will fail because its bureaucratic structures tend to be cold, mechanical, and extremely expensive. 
Government programs often do not serve individuals, but trap them into a socialist mindset of dependence. There is no amount of money in the world that can do all that is now being promised. Governments have to rely on quote-unquote money trees to supply what is missing. The second wrong premise is that throwing money at the problem will make it go away. The current government solutions are not resolving problems, but merely papering them over with dollars. They are bankrupting the nation. Problems are resolved by addressing their causes, not their effects. Thus, the decision to assume the expense of sustaining the economy with checks and payroll payments is a shotgun approach that does not address the real issues. Present compensation programs make things worse by making it profitable to be unemployed for the crucial recovery months. The real issues involve risky decisions about getting people back to work as soon as possible. Flooding every market with dollars to bolster the economy will not work in the long run. Real solutions must involve targeted responses to specific problems. They call for courageous decisions on the part of leaders who do not cater to the polls. Throwing money at problems leads to habits of dependency. It also leads the government turning to money trees to supply the funds. The final flawed premise of those dealing with the coronavirus is their assumption that all measures must be painless. The crisis must not cause people undue suffering. To reduce the hardships, the government must try to satisfy all needs for everyone and at all times. Failure to do so will have political consequences. This premise is based on a modernist conception of a world without God. This view holds that everything can be resolved by government and technology alone. It denies the reality of a fallen human nature that accounts for tragedy and suffering. Thus, to limit the suffering caused by the crisis, governments prescribe total lockdowns and draconian measures to fight in vain against the inevitable course of the virus that will infect populations. Government stimulus programs and handouts must underwrite the massive economic damage caused by these lockdowns. It must assume payrolls and cover generous unemployment benefits. To accomplish this impossible task, the government must turn to trillion-dollar money trees to provide free money. Of course, money does not grow on trees, despite efforts to turn the Fed into a money fruit orchard. Such money always consists of borrowed funds that will weigh down the future and destroy a sound economy. Governments get to play with trillion-dollar fires and will always get burned. Real solutions come from limiting the role of government, targeting aid to the right places, and accepting the pain and suffering that crises bring. Acting correctly in times of crisis is a moral problem, not an economic one. Money trees, like golden egg-laying geese, never work in the long term. There will come a time when greedy legislators will want more cash than the trees can produce. Someone will get the bright idea to chop down the trees and tap into the hidden money reserves inside. That's when everything comes tumbling down. 
This is the end of Turning the World Upside Down. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.